Living Crisis special episode, we spoke to our University of Southampton Associate Director of Widening Participation and Social Mobility, as well as Susu, Vice President for Welfare and Community, about the impact on students and support available during this cost of living crisis. We also had the enormous privilege of speaking to the leader of Southampton City Council, Satvia Kaur, who shared her thoughts beliefs and action relating to the cost of living crisis. Good morning, Florence and Aisha. Welcome to the Class Ceiling Podcast. It's wonderful to have you both today. Okay, so what are the explicit cost of living crisis issues affecting students at the moment? The thing is that students, like everyone in the community, are being affected by cost of living. I think we're all seeing rising costs across, you know, all of the things that that we're purchasing day to day. And I think because the main places where we're seeing rising costs are in consumable things, things that we buy and then we use, these are things that the students are buying kind of more so maybe than some other people who might be saving, who might be investing, who might be, uh, you know, buying large items, spending money on holidays because they're at different stages of their career. Whereas for students, like a lot of the things that you're buying, you know, it's rent, it's bills, it's food, it's travel. It's these things that we're seeing are significantly going up in all areas, you know, that we're seeing across the across the piece. So I think that explicitly affecting students in that specific way, because that's what students are buying. That's where students are allocating their money. But I think the other aspect, of course, is that the money which students can bring in isn't necessarily going up. So while we're not seeing the student loans rising alongside inflation, so we are actually seeing students having less money in their pockets than previously. Students are much more likely to be working in jobs which are based in either gig economy jobs or jobs in things like restaurants or hospitality or those kinds of jobs, which as people make choices not to go out, as people make choices not to tip as much at the end of the meal, all of these things are going to be affecting the amount it is that students are able to to bring in. And then I think the final piece as well is around rent. And I think we're seeing rents have been continuing to go up. And I think that that's something that we see affecting students massively, particularly in a city like Southampton, where, you know, there is quite a lot of private rented accommodation available, but it is all at a specific amount. You know, you are paying, when I first came into this job, looking at financial support about five years ago, you know, we were saying that you'd be paying about £85 a week for a room. Now we're saying it's much more closely to £110 a week for wow. a room or more. Gosh. So we are seeing these things are going up quite considerably. So, so yeah, th- I think those are the reasons why it's explicitly affecting students. I think like Florence said, like the main things are kind of like bills, food, living costs, soaring rent and things like that. Food is exceptionally expensive at the moment. Obviously, that's a basic necessity that everyone needs to survive. 
But I think a big part of the student experience as well is being able to go out and socialise with your friends and with the rising costs and stuff like that. Students aren't able to go out with friends anymore or maybe participate in activities that they would have been able to do before. And then that obviously is going to have a large impact on student mental health, especially if you're continuously isolated, if you're just staying at home, you can't really find anything to do because everything's costing more. And I think from like a medical well-being perspective as well, I think one of the biggest worries is kind of like affording medication and prescriptions and maintaining your routine well-being appointments with kind of like your dentist and your opticians and things like that. And these are all services that have a cost to students and they can be severely detrimental to your health, like if they're missed. And I just think that students will be more likely to kind of like neglect those basic well-being appointments and things like that just so they can be able to afford rent and bills and food well thank you yeah um, maybe those are things that don't spring to mind straight away <laughs> things like prescriptions it hadn't crossed my mind actually that you know students still have to pay for those don't in england not in wales apparently I would definitely agree with Aisha there and those those things. And there was a study that uh, that recently was was done. There was a, there was a number of news articles about it that were looking at those costs that students were specifically like not choosing to purchase anymore. And glasses was one of them. Dentists was another one of them. So mm-hmm. it is these things that we're seeing that are coming kind of more and more as things that I think that we previously would have thought as as essentials that people would just be able to cover. And now moving into the space of those things being luxuries, which was a worrying space to find ourselves. And we're talking about a crisis and that is critical, isn't it? Healthcare cutbacks that can have a knock-on effect for the future as well. You know, bad oral health can have really serious implications uh, for the future and not wearing glasses, not having having your eye test on every year, wearing the wrong glasses. Um, Yeah, so it, it is critical. So with global and national crises, there's usually um, at least one group is affected in different ways to another, or maybe even more. So, for example, in the the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw that women were unequally affected because of their overrepresentation in the service economy. In this cost of living crisis in the UK at the minute, are there any individual groups who are affected in particular and in what ways? I think the situation is exceptionally harder for working class students coming to uni. They're already grossly underrepresented at top universities, but also at university in general. And I think it's largely because they have those barriers of not being able to afford to get to university. And now there's an additional barrier of even when they get here, they're hit by the cost of living crisis and soaring like rents and uh, like uh, bills and food and things like that. And that can be exceptionally difficult. And I think that Rather than removing barriers for a wide representation of students to come to university, the cost of living crisis has kind of put back in barriers, essentially. And so you're going to end up with not a very diverse group of students coming to university. And also students aren't going to be able to kind of access what they need, like education, to pursue further prospects beyond university, like jobs and things like that. And I think that that's kind of a big worry as well. Definitely. And I think the impact there that you could you kind of mentioned there about Aisha as well is that it's because university needs to be about so many things. University is not about coming, studying your subjects and living on lentils. It's about experiencing everything that universities has to offer. It's about being able to kind of live and become part of the community of the place that you might have moved to or remain part of the community that you might have already kind of lived in and, um, and kind of found your roots in. And if we're, we're moving into a space where students can't 
you know, can't afford to do those extra things, then when we talk about university, we talk about the value of university and what it is that students are going to come out with. Those are the kinds of skills and benefits that university can provide and help you get onto that next bit, move into that next space of, of your job. So I think it's it's certainly true that not being able to have that breadth of opportunities and experiences whilst you study is is detrimental in many ways. I also think there are other groups of students that we see and I think obviously money is a massive impact so if you if you're coming to university with less money if your family have less disposable income to be able to bridge those gaps for you then you are going to be harder hit but then there are other students so students with disabilities disabled students or students who also might be struggling to a greater extent you know if you have a chronic health condition that means that you need to have your heating on a little bit more if you've got um, mobility aids that you're needing to charge those are going to be increasing your costs and if you're living in a house with a group of other people that's a challenging thing to be able to navigate isn't it because that's going to lift the bills up for the house and you're going to have to be having those conversations so I think that there are many groups of students that are being hit but I think income obviously is a massive one but other barriers that can exist around kind of specifically around students with disabilities Mm -hmm. and then finally student parents so you know, as soon as you as soon as you've got more than one person in your household, the cost of living is going to impact impact you even more because you're buying more food, you're you know, you're buying more consumer goods, but also you've got childcare and that's a real challenge. You know, the money that you're getting from student finance will only ever cover eight to five percent of the childcare bills which you're paying. And that means that you are gonna to have to be able to find that additional money that you go through. And when you look at postgraduate students or international students, the funding that you get is nowhere near enough to be able to to cover those those costs in those in some areas. So, yeah, I would say that student parents are another kind of key area where we're seeing differential outcomes based on cost of living issues. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think working class students, it, I think they go when the coast is clear, not when they're in survival mode, you know, which, of course, how can when you're in survival mode about not being able to go to the dentist or have glasses or you know or eat properly or heat your home how do we communicate you know those long-term benefits of thriving and not just surviving to working class students you know having been in survival mode many many times a long time ago university wouldn't be the first thing you think about when you need to eat and when you know the conversations in your household are all about money every day you know there isn't enough for that where are we going to get money for this and you know there's not going to be a conversation about you know where can we find money to go to university so yeah what are these long-term effects of the cost of living crisis for students and, and particularly these groups we're talking about and potential students crucially isn't it who are making a decision How, what will happen long term moving forward well we're already behind in terms of how much it is that people are receiving in t- with money and how much it is that they need when they're spending when they're here so we're already seeing a disconnect between inflation and the amount of money that students are receiving so that's only going to continue and you're only going to see that your loan may be worth less based on how much it is that you can afford to buy. The spectre of student debt is really challenging, I think, for a lot of people. I think debt means different things to different people, depending on your experience of it. And when you have never been in debt, you've never had to consider the the possibility of debt or what that means, a student loan really doesn't mean very much. You can kind of say, oh, yeah, no, it's a tax and that's fine. And I understand that. And it's no problem to me. But when 
you may have seen debt or experienced debt or seen that in your family and experienced the impacts of debt, then that's going to mean so much more to you. So there's that long term kind of impact on how it is that you view university and what you view university to be for, which is going to be different depending on your kind of your financial background, your financial security that kind of exists around you. And I think that that can also impact on choices that students are making when they're coming into university. What subject I study, for example, like can I afford to study history? Because I don't know what I'm going to do if I study history. But if I study law, I can be a lawyer. And so it's going to impact on how it is that people view what university is for and the idea that university is for getting a job. Whereas actually university can be for so much more. It can give you so many more opportunities. It can give you the opportunity to travel. It can give you the opportunity to meet people who are different from you or um, kind of expand your thinking in different ways. It can mean that you can learn in a very, very different way to how you've done before. But if you're always focused on what it is that you're going to be able to do when you come out at the end of it, then you might not miss it. You might miss out on those additional opportunities. So I think that that is a real challenge for a lot of young people. But I think the thing you're saying, Heather, as well about being in survival mode is really interesting as well, because what universities are kind of doing, lots of universities are doing for young people at the moment, is they're providing a safety net that the state is not necessarily able to do. So if you're a young person at university, your ability to access mental health support is so much more easy, so much quicker than it would be if you're a young person who's not in university, because the structures and the support exists around it. Similarly, if you're in financial hardship or you're in your university, you can ask your university and universities mainly have significant budgets to be able to support students and can you know, provide you with some money to tide you over that's not something that can that can happen if you're a young person who's working so university can kind of help you if you're in that place of trying to survive because there are those resources which exist around students who are in university but I think often they're difficult to see and they're difficult to access and they might be kind of challenging personally to ask for But but a good idea is kind of communicate that to potential students as well, because the perception might be before entry that, you know, it's it's a luxury rather than a route that might be actually offer more robust support. So our study suggested that more students are working up to 30 hours per week. How does this affect student success? What are the implications of putting students' education at risk to fund their education? mainly when you're working long hours, this is ultimately going to put pressure on your studies. The time that you're spending working is the time that you could be spent studying. And for students that can afford to go to university and don't have to work, they're ultimately going to be able to put more of their hours towards studying and getting those better grades and kind of like being more successful and stuff like that. And I think if we don't start to support students now, kind of like, as I said before, we're going to see like a significant reduction in grades and their performance and then this may like limit like progression opportunities within university students may end up dropping out we may end up having like more referrals more repeats and things like that and that's ultimately going to put more stress on the student especially if you're having to redo exams in the summer when that's time that you could be working like full-time to gain a lot of money and things like that that's kind of like putting a lot of pressure on students and I think ultimately it's just kind of like this vicious circle where if you can't afford to go to uni and then you have to work alongside your degree and then you're not passing your degree, you're going to limit your job prospects in the future and then the whole circle is just going to repeat itself again. 
there's a couple of questions I think around work because I think there's work that you can do at uni and there's work you can do at uni like there's really impactful work that you can do which can which are things like doing internships being that you can hopefully get paid for if you're doing paid internships getting paid internships or doing things that kind of are related to what it is that you want to learn or things that can be able to get you skills so I think working whilst you're studying is set up in the right way and if it's doing things and it's giving you those skills that you want to be able to get it can be a really good way for you to meet people and be able to be part of the, the local community as well but it's when it's that tip and Daisy you're exactly right when you say that like students who are working 30 hours a week it is not conducive to be able to study in a really effective way whilst you're working 30 hours a week but that is the reality for a lot of people and I think that we can do two things we can say you know, create a huge amount of, of financial support, or create interventions within institutions that can say, right, this is how we can help you to make sure that you don't have to work this number of hours. This is some money we can give you. This is this is how we can support you in being able to do it. And we can also, in the same same breath, provide those opportunities to be able to do effective work. So the internship programs that we can do that can mean that you can do these things. But then the other question as well is, if this is the reality for some of for, for many of our students and may become more and more of our students, how can we reflect that in how we do university? Like how we provide students the ability to access university in a more flexible way. And I think that that's where we can start also questioning ourselves and say, right, well, there are certain things that we've always done. Do we have to do them in that way? Is this the most accessible thing that we're trying to do? We're trying to create an institution which is much more representative of the diverse students that are coming into us and the reality of it, of it for some students is that they will work um, you know and maybe they want to work maybe they are a mature student who has come back to study but is working in something they want to do and want to be able to balance it or they have their own business that they're being able to do these things how can we create a lot more flex around that so I think I think it's those two things and then the final thing I'll say on this as well is that there are students who I've worked with who we actually the money they're receiving is quite high like they're getting quite a lot of money they're getting money maybe from student finance but also from bursaries maybe from additional bursaries that are coming through and they're still working lots and lots of hours and sometimes we're seeing that money go into a savings account but it's around stability and it's around that kind of that feeling of, of security and saying well actually you know what I am going to work 30 hours a week however much you give me because then I, I know I have control I know I have money coming in and I can rely on that for myself and that I think is is also an experience that we have to understand better and we have to you know reflect that better through our systems and processes that we have in place at the institution. Yeah that's a very good point you made because for working class students all of a sudden having a bit of financial security if that's happening via work and bursaries and all this additional support it's it, it's valued greatly isn't it and and also the the you're kind of calling out the fact that this system isn't working as well no and and how do we kind of redesign it so how is this affecting students mental health Florence oh there's a huge link between financial well-being and mental health you know we know that if you're going through periods of poor mental health that is likely to impact your financial well-being and if you're having challenging financial situations it is more likely that you're going to have you know, significant mental health issues. There's some kind of interesting research which has been being done at the university actually around this link and kind of the the things that you're seeing. So it is significant. You know, we all know that like there's that many of us who have been at one point or other in our lives where you've got that fear of money, you know, that fear of what am I going to do? I know I can't cover these bills that are about to go out of my account. 
And I don't know what I'm going to do about that. It stays with you all the time, isn't it? It's not something you can just brush off because you've gone to a lecture. Like it's something that's with you all the time. And there's only ever so many things that people can hold at the same time, isn't there? You will always end up having to let go of things so that you can hold on to other stuff. So, yeah, money and financial well-being are, are so, so interlinked because it because also you then move into a, a place of going, well, and I've certainly done this at points in my life of going, well, what's the point? What's the point in saving? I might as well have something nice. I might as well do this thing. I might as well spend this money. I know it means that I'm not going to be able to pay that bill, but that is the the place that I'm in because I never have quite enough, you know? And so it puts you into that state where you can make those decisions, which from the outside might seem like poor decisions, but are the decision that you're making at the time with the the information that you have in front of you. So I think we need to talk about money more. We're not very good at talking about money. I think that conversations about money are controlled and owned often by people who have money. And I think that that's, uh, that's a bit of a problem. We're kind of told that talking about money is, you know, is a bit it's a bit uncouth, like it's not what you're supposed well, to you do. Know, I, I've noticed that in the South when I moved here, <laughs> that people don't talk about money. You know, like it, it's a very Northern thing to people just say, oh, I like that. How much was it? And then you'll, you'll say, oh, you know, it's 9.99 from Primark. No, you know, <laughs> it's and also I kind of know all my Northern families kind of council tax bill and things like that people do talk about the financial management or or mismanagement or you know inflation I know it's it's probably with the cost of living crisis we're doing it a lot more you know in my current kind of work and friendship circle but um, I think it is important that students start to talk about it because it's sometimes I think it's not a decision between buying a nice thing and paying a bill I think it's just not having the money to pay the bill because students have family situations as well and I sure don't they have you kind of observed that where there's really difficult situations at home yeah definitely I think like I've spoken to a few students who've kind of like approached me and been like well I need to work because my mum can't currently work at the moment because she's sick and then they'll have like a sibling that will need support and stuff like that so they're not only working to be able to go to university themselves but also working to be able to support kind of their family as well yeah and that's proper survival mode isn't it and you know proper respect to all students who are dealing with a level of crisis you know there are lots of students that we work with and talk to who uh, contribute to their you know their house their family income or like you know Mm. we'll give send money home or us living at home and paying part of the bills like that is that is something which is seen as really rare but actually is more common and I think that going back to kind of the talking about money it's one of the things that people don't think anyone else is doing and then you the more you talk about it the more you recognize that there are some other people who are having this experience as well it is a university experience it's just not one that has dominant narrative I think um, a lot of the things we're talking about, like obviously they've been exaggerated by the cost of living crisis. So one thing I just want to like really emphasise is that this has been a reality for a lot of like working class students for like the whole time they've been at university, like not being and even not even just students, like even just like the people I know, do you know what I'm saying? Not being able to make rent, like struggling with that. And then imagine like now everything's increasing. You already couldn't afford it. And now everything costs like way more than it already did, like that is that I wouldn't I don't want to say it's a bigger crisis because a lot of people experiencing like new situations or maybe just worse situations that can be labeled a crisis but that is like a major crisis like I mean for example like 
I don't want to I don't like to talk about myself but honestly like I can't even afford to get to my lectures like get to university campus you know what I'm saying because I lost my job like in the middle of the cosmic crisis and there's things like that like I'm sure I'm not the only one who like literally cannot afford to go to university like um before I was working a lot like up to like 26 hours a week and I feel like this is something that those people do like my siblings and things that were siblings they went to university they worked my mum works when she went to university, do you know what I mean? Like, it's a very normal thing. I don't think this is in that old people having to work more, like... And I don't think it's necessarily about, like, even... Well, it can be, but I think it is literally being able to afford their rent. Like, even the student loan and stuff, do you know what I mean? It's not enough. Like, especially if you've got debts already as well. Like, that student loan's coming in, it's gone straight away, like... And like you said, like, it's tiring. It's really tiring. And that's a mental load that students are having to carry into their studies and having to carry into every day, which some other people aren't having to carry. The same way that like COVID-19 taught us how we can be more accessible for providing online learning platforms for people with disabilities or chronic illnesses, the same way we can learn from the cost of living crisis where we're seeing it exaggerated, we can think, okay, how can we kind of help students in poverty? Because I don't just want to say working class because there are students who will be living or have lived in poverty. Well, that's a good point you make, Daisy, that a lot of working class people don't have financial problems or haven't had financial problems. They're just working class. And with that comes discrimination. But a lot of working class people who are in semi-skilled, unskilled jobs will be pushed into poverty, won't they, over the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, and I think just back to kind of what you were saying about this not being a new crisis is is completely true. We've been creeping into this for a really long time. And, you know, we've been seeing this slow reduction in the amount of money which you can get, you know, the changing of the grant system that meant that you had to take everything out in loans, you know, as things have kind of slightly rise, not seeing that kind of that increase at minimum wage level, you know, for many students, they're not even earning minimum wage because they're not 21. So, you know, you've got this kind of ongoing impact, which, you know, young people particularly have been seeing kind of coming through over the last 10 years, really. And, like you said, it's a crisis is something that is not something that, you you know, it's not like everyone was just going along and then we all just fell off a cliff. We've been climbing this hill of this yeah. crisis for many, many years. Um, and I think what's what's happening now is more people are affected. And so more people are talking about it and it's being recognised um, a lot more. But, you know, we've been we've been allocating over half a million pounds every year in financial hardship every single year since I've been working in in financial support. This year, we've increased the budget up to £950,000 for students in financial difficulty. And we've already allocated over £400,000 to students, which I have never seen before. So it's it's definitely a combination of things that's kind of that's that's hitting on this. I think that part of it is the fact that going back to talking about it, we are talking about it more. And I think it does mean that people feel like they can reach out for help a little bit more. And I think part of the more money that we're seeing go out is because more people are going, oh, hold on a second, actually, I do need some help and I do need to ask for something. And actually, everyone seems to be in a bit of trouble, so it's not so much of a problem for me to ask. But it's definitely something that's been happening for a long time. Mm-hmm. What kind of support is available at the University of Southampton for students affected by the cost of living crisis and how can they access this? So from within the Student Union, we have a few initiatives running at the moment. So we obviously have our advice centre. That's always been there. 
it's always run as part of SUSU and that's basically a free and confidential service for students. It's completely independent from the university so none of that information gets shared but you can go there for support about anything and this can be like financial support, housing support, academic issues if you kind of like get into like a struggle and stuff and like your academic performance is really low. They can help you with special considerations applications and stuff like that and then if you're struggling with like money for finance specifically, they have a debt advisor that comes in and they talk to students about loans and kind of like how to budget and things like that. And I think where we're seeing that student loans are not rising with inflation and like students like accessing bursaries as well, there are some students that will turn to like loans and things that have high interest rates and stuff like that just for that quick short term money. So I think it's really good that we have someone who is a debt advisor and can support students in kind of like navigating them to the right path and stuff and not taking out those loans and actually finding support from somewhere else. We have like a Wellbeing Wednesday as well. It runs 9am to 5pm and we have a new welfare room that's just open and so students can go there and they can get free soup and support in the advice centre. So that's really good. You can kind of like get a hot drink, get biscuits and also talk to other students that may be in the same position as you, which I think is quite nice because then you've found other people that are also like might be like well I can't afford to go out and stuff like that and then maybe you can kind of like interact with them and do like a lot of other activities and things like that which we found quite nice like students just being able to like interact with each other. We also have like a well-being cupboard and we offer like lots of free resources like free period products are in there. There's lots of like um, information about where to get support, signposts to and stuff like that. And then we have like our food for all cupboard, which is a big cupboard that students can just go up to the advice centre. They don't have to ask anyone and they can just get the food that they'd need for like a week or for however long that they need food for. And that might be just like grabbing some food quickly until their next paycheck or kind of like there to get like not long term support, but maybe like a bit longer than that as well. And that that would be there. Um, so that's kind of what we have from like a student union perspective. Yeah, so the university obviously have needed to kind of work quite quickly to be able to consider how it is that we can support students this year with the rising costs. So I'm working with people from across the university on our cost of living operations group, which is kind of has a clear action plan about how we are implementing kind of different areas of support across the across the institution. So the first one is money. So we've been able to secure some some significant additional money to be able to support students financially. So I mentioned the hardship fund already. So the hardship fund has gone from 550 to 950,000 pounds this year and students can apply for that. And I would really encourage any students who are listening to this to apply for the hardship fund we can kind of look at your specific circumstances. So unlike student finance, it doesn't necessarily look at what your household income is. It looks at kind of what your specific circumstances. And we are endeavouring to kind of support as many students as we can through that process. Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, one of the things that we've created this year is two new funds which can work kind of more quickly and be really targeted. So we've got the technology fund, which we've set up this year. So the technology fund provides grants, non-repayable grants to students to be able to spend money on hardware. So things like laptops or so your laptop breaks and you need to get it fixed. You can apply for some funding from that. You can get things like headphones if you need like noise cancelling headphones so that you can access online content or software so there's all sorts of different things that you can apply for under that and then this year we've also created in kind of 
response to what Aisha raised at the beginning around kind of that challenge for students in accessing kind of healthcare, we've created the Health and Wellbeing Fund. So the Health and Wellbeing Fund is available for students to apply for a wide range of things that can support their health and wellbeing whilst they're at university. So this could be some money towards an eye test and some glasses. It could be some money to be able to buy a mobility aid that means that you can access campus more easily. So we, we offer, obviously at the university, we offer kind of well-being support and we offer counselling through the university, but we only offer successions to students. And then it's kind of moving out into the NHS and we know that waiting lists are long and also that some students need very specific kind of targeted therapies. So we're also being able to offer students money towards that if they need that. So that's something that we were starting to see and come through more and more in the hardship fund. So we wanted to create a specific fund that could be available. And finally, one of the other areas that covers through that is heating grants. So if you do have a disability and it means that you're having to have your heating on more and you could do with some kind of additional funding you can apply to that fund um, so it's specifically for students with disabilities and students who are either parents or carers to be able to apply for additional funding so those are kind of new things that we've created for this year we were also able to uplift our commuting fund so we've um, supported students with £50,000 worth of funding already towards the cost of commuting to university so that's for students who live at home and come in each day so there's a contributionary cost that we've been able to allocate there. That, again, was uplifted from we had 10,000 last year. We, we took that to 50 this year. So it's been really good to see the kind of the investment that's been made in students. But then I think the, the other pieces are how can we kind of utilise other things? So not just like the money that we have, but also our estate. So obviously we have our library, which is open 24 hours a day. So that's a place that students can come and can study. It will always be warm. It will be a place that you can come and use. We've increased the number of hot water machines and microwaves on all of our campuses so that you can bring food you're not having to buy food from the the places on campus you can heat food up at, at campus and we've also doing a number of more kind of free events so there's free events at every hall site every day so each day there's a different event at hall sites those are all completely free they almost all have food as well so that you can come you can get a meal you can do a craft activity you could do a, a sports activity you can do all sorts of different things so it's how can we really open up what we already have and make it available to students and then finally I think the the, the other thing that we're you know really trying to do is making sure that we're employing as many students as we can so I know obviously we don't want students to be working loads and loads of hours a day but if you work with the university it does pay more than minimum wage and also it can be in kind of targeted areas where you might want to get some more experience so you know seeing how many more internships we can do, how many more students we can employ on our projects, um, how many students that we can employ and pay for things like just your thoughts and be able to engage with us on what we're doing and how we can be doing things. We have four students who are employed to be on our cost of living um, operations group, for example. So it's it's how can the university really engage with students kind of more effectively and also pay students so that they can kind of contribute more. That's so much there, Florence and Aisha. Thank you so much. Daisy and I do this podcast and we're very often looking at the bigger picture and trying to change society in the world. You know, that's our really big thing. I think this conversation has been so important as a shout out to students for what is available right here, right now, that can help support their learning experience and their living and health experience and well-being as well. I mean, like, 
I'm not like it's made me it makes me just feel like quite angry not at the conversation like it was a really good conversation but I mean at the topic in general um and also the kind of like bit of sweetness of okay now we're recognizing these things but it's we're only recognizing it when it's starting to basically when it's starting to affect middle class children do you know what I'm saying like this has been a problem that's existed before for so many working class students from like people living in deprived areas like living in poverty or around poverty and like it's just bittersweet like do you know what I mean like now we're finally recognizing it it's only because it's affecting more people. But um, as I said before, the same way we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, how we can be more um, accessible for people with disabilities and chronic illnesses, the same way we can learn for the cost of living crisis to help working class students or students living in poverty to access university. Like, I really do hope, as you said, Florence, I really do hope we learn from this, learn that it isn't working for everyone. And that's um, quite serious remodeling goes into and more thought into like not just funding but kind of like how can we make like more ways so that it's more accessible you know like changing the actual inner workings of university the same way that we did for the COVID-19 pandemic like this is a crisis that is in my opinion just as important like because people are dying they're starving they're freezing do you know what I'm saying it's not like no it's not like there's no death so yeah that's my reflection sorry I'm rambling again but <laughs> oh, brilliant <laughs> as always Daisy and uh, you know the Class Ceiling podcast continues to amplify our belief and the fact that working class students matter just as much as every other single student regardless of any preconceptions anyone might have. Thank you so much Florence and Aisha you've been brilliant. about cost of living crisis mainly but for our listeners who aren't familiar with you yet can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming leader of Southampton City Council? It's a bit of a long one so shortened version I am born and bred Southampton grew up in the inner city on free school meals because I come from quite a traditional background me and my sisters were actually the first to be allowed to go to university within our community so um, yeah it was a great privilege to go to the University of Southampton where I studied history and politics never in a million years did I actually think I'd enter politics especially kind of being an elected representative I actually bumped into John Denham, who is uh, the local MP at the time, while I was volunteering at a community event, and actually back then told him I felt a little bit disillusioned, but naturally thought John was brilliant because he was a brilliant member of parliament for the area and explained how much I really don't like the other side. And he was like, oh, I could really do with people like you on board my campaign. And I ended up helping him and his team in that campaign. My first day actually was I got a phone call from someone in his team a couple of weeks later saying, are you free on Monday? Can you help out? I said, yes, I am. And it just happened to be the day that Gordon Brown, who was prime minister at the time, was visiting Southampton and they needed like young bright enthusiastic people to greet him at the train station in front of the cameras and I ended up being one of those people so yes my first time or first day helping out the Labour Party happened to be meeting the Prime Minister at the same time which was of course brilliant helped out John in his campaign it was the campaign and election where he won by 192 votes and I remember personally feeling as did everybody in his team as though we'd personally got him over the line and I suppose that was the first time I recognised that you can be part of something bigger and it can make a difference and you individually can be part of making that difference which was really inspiring 
a few months later, a new Labour friend texted me and said, have you ever considered being a councillor? And I remember responding saying, no, Fraser, I think you've sent this to the wrong person, <laughs> to which he was like, no, Satya, I mean you. And back then, I suppose it was a case of I just never thought of people like me doing something like that. And I reluctantly agreed to stand in an unwinnable, which had been conservative for like 15 odd years. And there was no way we were going to win it. But I um, did the campaign on election night. I won the unwinnable. I'm actually on local TV crying because I'm so shocked I won. And mentally to myself saying, I don't even know what a councillor does. <laughs> um, but it's definitely one of those where you either have found your calling and absolutely love it and kind of love the idea of changing lives, however big or small, um, or it's just not for you because there's no thanks. Most people hate politicians. It's hard work. It's really unsocial hours. But fortunately for me, it was the former. It wasn't that I've traditionally been a big political careerist um, where I've tried to climb some greasy pole, I suppose I've just naturally gravitated towards positions that have allowed me to have more influence and power because that means you can change more lives and do more stuff. Um, so I was first elected in 2011, since 2013 have been in cabinet where I've had various different roles, done incredible stuff for local communities and the city, which is a huge honour. And then when our leader stepped down after we lost the council, what I call our blip year, I was convinced to stand for leader of our group, which I did. We managed to win back the council within a year, which is fantastic. So as of last May, I became leader of the council, which is absolutely fantastic. And actually, it wasn't until after I was elected that somebody told me that apparently I'm the first person of colour that's ever led the council in Southampton and the first female seat leader in the country, which, of course, is incredible and kind of I feel such a sense of responsibility, but I suppose tinged with a bit of sadness because I just thought the days of firsts were over, but clearly not. I suppose it's my mission just to ensure that I'm not the last one. But yes, I love my role and I love kind of making a change in Southampton. I've got goosebumps. It's, it's so inspiring to hear that story illuminated and in guidance. I'm a career guidance counsellor and we talk about where are we now, where do we want to be and how do we get there? And to hear that in a nutshell journey is so inspiring. I know Daisy really it's really interesting getting into politics. And um, what did, what did, how did you feel listening to that, Daisy? What were you thinking? Yeah, um, it's really nice as well. It's just surprising to hear it's the first female seat lead like in the country at all, like especially the first woman in colour in Southampton. Like you th as you said, you think the days are first over. So that's amazing that you did all of that and you're still continuing to advocate in your position to uh, the things you were advocating before you got your position, if that makes sense. And Daisy, if you ever want to enter politics, please, please do so. I'm obsessed with just normal people representing other normal people. Nothing frustrates me more than seeing politicians all look, sound, act the same. And actually, I'm a big believer that diversity in all its sense, kind of, and people from different backgrounds, from different professions, from different ages, when you get them in a room, there might be more conflict and more challenge, but by God, does it lead to better decision making? And so only the residents of Southampton benefit from that. So yes, I'm really keen that more younger people and people from different life experiences kind of really get on board. What are the explicit cost of living crisis issues affecting people in Southampton, including University of Southampton staff and students and the many residents who are both? Um, so obviously, 
cost of the cost of living crisis as a national issue. So I suppose what's impacting Southampton probably isn't too dissimilar to what's impacting communities up and down the country. We are quite an urban city, though. You know, we've already had um, and always had kind of underlying kind of poverty issues. So I suppose adding on a cost of living crisis straight after a pandemic is, you know, is affecting us kind of even worse. So in particular, I suppose in Southampton, it's about heating and eating, which is affecting everybody. So we've got actually a cost of living hub on our website, um, which we've divided between kind of four main key areas, which is about how you heat your home and what we can do. We actually introduced our warm welcome scheme, which is our public spaces. And I know others are helping and I believe we're talking to the university about them supporting this as well about, you know, if you're really struggling, you know, are there warm spaces you can go to? But these places are more more than just going there to keep warm but you know what support and advice can you get we're also giving refreshments meeting other people which is fantastic and also around the heating we're thinking more long term as well so and we've got this whole energy efficiency drive whether you're in the you know however you're renting or home ownership so we can have our homes more energy efficient so your energy bills are lower longer term we work really closely with it when it comes to food distribution in particular we've pledged to be a right to food city to ensure that nobody goes hungry working really closely with families and young people in particular in our local schools who do an incredible job our voluntary sector have to be our third sector in the city around this area is amazing and it's our job to help facilitate that so the big difference in particular doing a great job and have amazing relationships with our local supermarkets as well to ensure that where we need it there is support available um, with both of those areas no one's naive enough to think that that is the solution we all know that so much of that is sticking plasters so it's about how, what can you do longer term to help address that and for me that's about you know how do we ensure that all major employers the council the university are a real living wage employer because it's clear that at the moment minimum wages and paying for the basics like eating and heating so you know as employers are we paying our staff a decent wage so you know they can survive you know is it a decent job how is it impacting their lives and their families lives as well which for me is huge another area is mental health really impacting Southampton I know this is more of a national issue but for example before the pandemic, one in 10 people in Southampton were on antidepressants, basically means, I mean, half the people that are suffering from mental health probably won't go to a doctor's and get a prescription. So, you know, that statistic clearly within our within our friend statistic. It's, that it's, is... so, it's, it's sad. It broke my heart. I mean, I, have, I mean, I've had two friends that I've lost to mental health, which is soul destroying. And there's no one I have met recently that hasn't even personally experienced it with someone very close to them or know of someone that has. And it's not just, you know, it just has such a long term effect of, you know, their families, their friends and communities. It's a real issue with young people as well. So we're doing absolutely everything we can. And it's something that I personally feel passionately about because obviously it's it's impacted me personally. And one of the friends I actually lost during the pandemic, and it's just kind of really clear how something like a pandemic and now the cost of living is really impacting people's mental health and I speak it stacks to up, doesn't it it really I, I've noticed that yeah. student, it, it really stacks up that kind of um, 
you know, we, we the first half of this podcast, we interviewed internal staff who, who dish out bursaries and, you know, offer additional support. And much like you, they were kind of signposting to services and, you know, and, and this isn't normally an information type podcast, but I think it's so important that you highlight, you know, what uh, what's available across the city. And that shocking statistic about one in 10 residents are on antidepressants. And it's more than boring. You know, the thing of not having money is boring. It's more than that, isn't it? It's about survival at this point. Yeah. And like really kind of it just has like a ripple effect, an unwanted consequence and ripple effect. If you don't have enough money, which makes you really stressed out, it impacts not only you, but your partner, your kids, your friends, you know, everybody around you, you know, there's kind of been loads of research around domestic abuse increasing when mental health increases because of a cost of living crisis, for example, all of this will have a ripple effect within our local community. So it's about getting to not pretending that it's not an issue because so many people are like, oh, we'll deal with that when we deal with it, you know, actually saying this is so important. And unless you deal with it, you'll be paying for it somewhere else you may as well deal with the root of the problem and you know what's wrong with trying to achieve a life worth living rather than just surviving which is what we're desperately trying to do um two longer term things we're really working on as well because i do believe it's not just about sticking classes but longer term is making travel more affordable and housing as well because those two things are obviously the crux of kind of having a healthy kind of fulfilled life um so we're doing loads around more affordable housing and kind of reforming the private rented sector and regulating it more but we've um, made bus travel cheaper in the city because we know especially younger people you know so many people can't afford a car and I know kind of loads of car owners at the moment that aren't using their cars because fuel has gone up so obviously there's so many ways that you can get around the city I'm quite a walker you know how do we make our walking routes better whether you e-scoot whether you cycle whether you use the bus it's our job and what we're working really hard to achieve is however you get around the city it is safer easier more accessible and cheaper um, which we're working really hard on and actually just delivering more affordable housing that is safe and secure because I believe kind of decent housing should be a basic human right because without it you know it, it just impacts every part of your life whether it's you know study education employment health and well-being everything you know if you can get that right for somebody you know it has um, a really impressive ripple effect and you know there's loads of grants available where we can support people around that so it's quite nuanced but there is I feel like I've done like a light touch of what we're doing around cost of living but yeah like obviously trying to do the short term because we are in crisis mode in a national crisis but also kind of really focusing on the longer term, everything from more secure work, better paid jobs, to travel, to, to housing. And actually a really boring statistic, but important to someone like me, is if you live in the city and work in the city, you're statistically more likely to get paid less than if you live outside of the city, but travel into to work here. And actually, there's a real imbalance within our communities. And that includes students, actually, and students that choose to stay, which obviously we want them to do because a huge issue is that brain drain and kind of creating these really talented, amazing individuals. And then they leave our great city, but we want them to stay and make sure Southampton remains great. Are there any particular groups that are affected by the cost of living crisis more than other groups? And in what ways? 
you know, we always say protecting our poorest and most vulnerable. We try not to, well, I try not to use the terms poor and vulnerable because coming from quite a working class background, I definitely, you know, people just don't identify with always being poor or always being vulnerable. And no one wants to identify with being poor or being vulnerable. How do you know you're poor and vulnerable? You know, some will, but others won't. So I would say younger people naturally are affected. I feel as though the kind of chaos we've seen with the economic climate recently, it's and actually even before then during austerity, it's younger people that have been most disproportionately affected older people in certain circumstances but i feel as though the government has has looked to protect pensioners more so than than others so for example um there's a household support fund that's come to to councils it was meant to last us three months it actually lost us 24 hours that's just the scale of the problem but that's mainly because the government changed the rules where the majority of that had to go towards older people so there were so many families uh, and kind of young children people that had young children just just completely missed out so we're now creating a fund to to support more people that are falling through the cracks could I ask you a really key question, I think, because we do focus on social class on this podcast. We're super interested in it. You know, we've talked about accents and culture and um, all sorts. Do you think that local residents feel connected to our University of Southampton? And, and, and how do you think this could be strengthened further? So if I'm brutally honest, no, not as much as they should. We've got a world class university on our doorstep. Yeah. Never in a million years growing up in the inner city did I think I'd ever attend university or really kind of really see or kind of feel the benefits of having a world class university kind of 10 minutes up the road. I do think so. Obviously, this is coming. We're talking right at the back of me signing a civic agreement with the university. So I do think that has so much potential. There's loads of statistics you can look at um, kind of economically, socially most MPs that represent in Southampton are graduates from the University of Southampton. But when I knock on doors and I do that clearly on a regular basis every weekend, um, no, they don't see the benefits of what the University of Southampton does and, you know, and what it makes them feel. Do you think they think it's for other people? Because growing up in Salford in the, in the northwest, yeah. you know, which was very different then, but there was no BBC. <laughs> There was no cosmopolitan culture. I used to see students and I used to think, oh, that's something that other people do. I think there's a huge like aspirational thing with kind of our working class communities. I remember taking my nephew to an event a few years ago and pointing at the mayor of Southampton and saying, that could be you one day. And my nephew turning around to me, thinking I was pointing at his driver going, yeah, 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 I think I'd be quite a good driver. Yeah, I can do that. And it just broke my heart because it's just a case of allowing children to dream and like saying anything is possible and saying, you know, I'm a great believer that equal opportunities is great. But what's more important is equal access to those opportunities. And I do feel as though the University of Southampton can do so much more in that space, especially for people literally on their doorstep because we do have some of the most deprived communities in the UK residing in Southampton you know literally next door to the university is the Flowers Estate for example and I know um, I feel like I'm being critical because I know kind of recently there's been loads of projects I've said exactly the same on this podcast that we're next to the Flowers (laughs) yeah exactly and and I wonder if 
residents on that. I've worked on that estate actually in long term um, employability projects, and I know that that community think that the university is about other people. Yeah, exactly. So there's definitely something that something more that needs to happen about breaking down those barriers. So John Hansard Gallery, which I know is part of the University of Southampton, do these amazing like community takeovers. So almost this kind of making the community feel as though that's their space too. And, you know, I just think that's a really lovely way of kind of giving communities a sense of belonging and a kind of a real kind of link to the university. And so it's not feeling like an ivory tower, you know, in their back garden, but something that's part of them and something that they can access and touch and feel and and be a part of. And actually, if they want to be an astronaut one day or I don't know what has what the university done going to help kind of uh, with cures to cancer and create the internet and you know all the other amazing things that the university do you know if you're an inner city kid on free school meals you can be part of that you know it's just there's just so many possibilities and so actually one of the things I said earlier during the civic agreement signing was and actually Mark E. Smith said that exactly the same thing. The vice chancellor was around. This has to be more than just signing a piece of paper. You know, this has to be so much more meaningful because while, of course, the University of Southampton has had incredible national and international success and recognition and reach, you know, what is their commitment to their home, their roots, local people? um, And how do we build on that? So um, hopefully this is going to be the start of something really special. I hope so. What do you think the effects of the cost of living crisis are on entry to higher education and potential students moving forward? I've graduated from both universities and I was on the governing body of Solent University. And actually what I don't think people really realise is like any maintenance grants really don't cover what students really need. And it kind of forces them to work a lot more. And I feel as though the cost of living crisis just almost tipping them over. I was recently at the university talking to the Labour Society there, actually. And yeah, just talking about their experiences. And, you know, it's always there's always a joke about, you know, living on beans and toast because you can't really afford fancy meals. But it's just going beyond that. It's yeah, I'm I'm concerned about young people in our city and, you know, all residents. And that includes students. And, uh, you know, talking to businesses, so many businesses rely on students, students coming to them and spending their money with them. And, you know, it, it just creates a ripple effect if you don't if you don't look after students because they are part of our our economy. How much of an issue do you think student finance loans for maintenance not increasing in line with inflation is? What could the impact of that be for students locally? Absolutely humongous. I'm a big believer in increasing student maintenance grants and little stuff like buying a laptop and being able to update a laptop. I know, you know, can be a, it's a huge expense and can be a huge issue, but it's so integral to your course. I'm a I'm a big believer in um, supporting students more financially. Sabria, are there any local support services available for staff and students affected by the cost of living crisis and how can these be accessed? So there's lots happening. I think the easiest way is to go onto our cost of living hub, which kind of it kind of really neatly kind of divides it in sections because you can talk about everything from mental health to feeding yourself to heating your home to you know you name it but all of it is on there an important one is obviously like claim what you can as well there's so many people that don't know they can get access to whether it's a grant or benefits I do feel like 
younger people are disproportionately negatively affected in the benefit system. So I would change that if I had all the power in the world. Please do claim what you can, where you can, because there is support out there. I suppose part of the battle is knowing that it's there. Yeah, that's really helpful. Why is ensuring that university students are funded and supported appropriately during this cost of living crisis so important? It's hugely important for lots of reasons, not least because otherwise you would just get people, especially younger people from certain backgrounds whose parents have deep pockets being the only people that succeed. And we just can't have that. And I refuse for that to happen. You know, Southampton isn't a particularly kind of rich city. You know, we're we're doing our best, but actually, you know, young people are our future. They're the people that we're going to have to rely on when, you know, I suppose I'm never going to retire, I've decided, because the pensionable age is going to be so late. But it's so important to support students from all different backgrounds. And a huge frustration of mine is that it's not that poor kids or black kids or brown kids or women or people with disabilities are less talented or skilled or able or, you know, intelligent. They're just given less opportunities. So, you know, equality doesn't always equal fairness. It's about equal access to those opportunities. So what more can we do to support people who are equally skilled and intelligent and able to succeed? And, you know, part of that is going through university. And I'm a great believer that not everybody needs or wants to go to university. And that's absolutely fine. But for those that do and do want to, and there's certain professions where you do need a degree and you do need to go to university, how do we ensure that? we support those individuals so they can contribute to society, whether that's economically, socially, politically, and kind of almost doing kind of a full full circle. Um, it's back to those kind of big decision makers. Um, and actually, if you want that to be having better outcomes, you need better diversity and you can't have better diversity without inclusion. And people that work at the University of Southampton are going to be part of the, the solution to that because you're creating the next generation that's clearly going to save the country because it needs saving and the world so I'm right behind you. Students are now working up to 30 hours per week how does this affect student success and what are the implications of putting students education at risk to be able to fund their education? I remember when I went to university working in our local family business I had at various points three other on top of that three other different jobs and I remember getting a 2-1 and being really, really proud of it. And a friend of mine, or a few friends of mine, getting first. And I just remember feeling as though only if I could spend that little bit extra time in Hartley Library or, you know, could have made, um, done a bit more here or done a bit more there, but I just didn't have the time and, you know, to, to do it. Um, but was really, really proud of my achievement. And I suppose it's, you know, remembering that it's not how far you get but how far you climb or whatever that saying is. But back to my previous point, the importance of one, recognising there's an imbalance when people come to university and two, how do you address that and who needs more and how do you ensure they've got the resources to do that? But I do think students are having to work more. Both my niece and nephew, one of my nieces and nephews are at university at the moment and, you know, they're having to work several jobs to keep afloat and 
Uh, I'm not against students working. I think it's really great. I think it kind of really helps with kind of real life experience, which is what I tell my niece and nephew when they every time they moan. But there's a difference between that and basically trying to hold down a full time job and trying to get a degree because that degree can take you to amazing heights. But yeah. they need that support. It's, it's, it's getting a balance, isn't it? So, uh, you know, and I know academics, I think they don't, they recommend that students, I think it used to be 15 hours, but it's increased, but 15 seems the limit to me um, to be able to study as well. Sapu, so, it's been so inspiring listening to you talk so passionately about diversity and equality and students from non-traditional, and I don't like using that term, but sometimes that encompasses all of the groups who aren't the previous majority yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to have equity of experience and um, in our institution and, and beyond uh, thank you so much yeah thank you for coming on it's been really good hey thanks for having me the class ceiling podcast Smashing the class ceiling.